a Second Amendment ruling changes everything in the pistol brace ban debate, plus USCCA's political director explains her vision for the group's new action fund. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with Guns in America. We send you one email a week. If you're a free member, that has everything you need to know, I think, uh, stuff you are not going to find anywhere else. And then, of course, you can also buy a membership if you want even more, if you want to get access to our analysis, to our member-exclusive pieces, and you want to support the reporting we do here as an independent and informed publication. This week on the show, we are talking about a story that we actually uh, had an exclusive on recently, the formation of a new political group by a major uh, gun rights operation, uh, the United States Concealed Carry Association. You probably know them as USCCA. And we have with us today the executive director of their new action fund, uh, Katie Pointer Beanie, who is joining the show for the first time. Welcome to the show, Katie. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Great to be yeah. here. Always great to chat with you. Yes, yes. I appreciate you making the time to give us some insight into this new group and, and I guess, a bit of USCCA's overall strategy with uh, political uh, maneuverings, right? This is not the first group you guys have funded, but what is the new group? Tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely. So the USCCA for Saving Lives Action Fund is a new 501c4 organization that we have launched. Um, really, we're doing this in response to our membership. As you know, the USCCA is a membership organization. Um, hopefully, listeners who are tuned in are USCCA members. We have eight, over 800,000 folks across the country nationwide who are members. And what we heard from them is really this want this desire, need for us to get a little bit more involved in the political advocacy space, um, help them, really equip them with the tools, the education and the resources necessary to get involved in the political process. And that's really what we're doing through the Action Fund. We're trying to energize and engage gun owners to participate in the process, but have the tools and know where to start. I think a lot of folks look at our current political environment with sort of dismay, with frustration, and they don't know where to begin. They don't know where to start. And what the Action Fund wants to do and provide are, um, again, those sort of concrete steps that individuals can take in their local communities at the state level and at the federal level to influence the political process, to influence policymakers, and ultimately with the goal of promoting and safeguarding the Second Amendment for generations to come. Okay. And so, it, I mean, it sounds like the four, the 501c3 aspect of this, this new, this new group, the Action Fund, is something that you want to use to train activists, perhaps, like train people to go from being a gun owner to being a gun rights activist. Is that sort of the gist of the approach here? Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great way to phrase it. We also talk a lot about citizen lobbyists, because a lot of organizations in the 2A political space, um, they're going to raising funds, asking for money, paying for lobbyists to then influence the process. And while I think that's one strategy, that's one approach, it's an important piece of the puzzle, it's not everything. Uh, we want to equip gun owners to be the best 
influencers and representatives and, again, the citizen lobbyists that they can be um, in order to safeguard the Second Amendment. Because I think in order to do this for generations to come, we have to influence the millions of new gun owners that we have over the past couple of years. We have to influence our neighbors and our friends. We have to change the perception of gun ownership. And that really starts through grassroots activation. That starts with everyday American gun owners. That starts with USCCA members and really providing them with the scripts and the tools and the education necessary to do that, to be a voice, to participate in the process. Okay. And so what are what are a few of the specific things you have planned for this particular group, this action fund? What are the kinds of uh, events you're going to hold? I know you, you had a protest, uh, right, the, during the new Mexico governor's uh, attempt to uh, essentially ban concealed carry in, in the city, the state's largest city. Uh, what does this look like in practice for you? Well, I have to talk a little bit about that because what happened in New Mexico um, was a great example and case study of the grassroots activation that we want to see really across the country. So I'd love to thank the USCCA members that showed up. Uh, we had over 150 people really show up to like a rally press conference. We brought together uh, state legislators, local law enforcement. We partnered with uh, one of our official partners, Caliber Shooting Range in New Mexico to host the event. Um, and again, this was a focus on community. It was a focus on bringing people together to have a forum and to have a conversation about the New Mexico governor's order, about why it's clearly and blatantly unconstitutional, and showing a sort of force of gun ownership of saying we're not going to we're not going to tolerate this sort of intrusion on the Second Amendment. Um, and providing that forum, providing that community, um, doing all of the, the marketing and the work apparatus to get folks there, and then ensuring we had media coverage. We had um, all three of the major local networks there covering it, of showing responsible gun owners out, having this conversation, talking with local leaders and about what the next steps were going to be to challenge the New Mexico governor's order, which, of course, as you know, has been put on hold and she's retracted pieces of it. Um, so that was really a great case study. We were really happy with the success of that event. And that's an event that we would like to replicate across the country, um, really empowering people in that community to show up, to get involved, to make their voice heard um, on a variety of you know legislative and political issues facing the Second Amendment. Um, so that's a really great kind of example of the sorts of events and in-person experiences that we want to host and to really bring gun owners together on. I would say we're also going to be looking ahead to the 2024 election um, and other events such as get out the vote registration campaigns. I want to make sure all new gun owners are registered to vote and that they think about their Second Amendment rights when they're going into the ballot box. If you've bought a firearm over the past couple of years to protect yourself, to protect your family, then make sure you use your vote, your voice, uh, to ensure that that right is protected, because there are plenty of politicians and lawmakers who who don't believe you should have that fundamental right to self-defense, that don't believe you should be able to own a firearm. Um, and so it's part of that educational tour, that informative tour, providing them with the tools, getting them registered, making sure everyone understands really what's at stake in 2024. And this will be in addition to a lot of the events that the USCCA already does across the country. We'll do some of them in conjunction with the USCCA. Uh, free training and education seminars um, at official partners, ranges, and retailers. Again, providing that sort of community for gun owners to come together, to have these conversations, um, and to feel like they're a part of the process. 
Okay. Uh, you just talked a little bit there about new gun owners, right? This this sort of idea of gun culture 2.0, seeing more uh, women, more minorities, more uh, urban and suburban gun owners, people with different interests from hunting, perhaps, right? Uh, joining the gun owning, uh, you know, community. <coughs> it sounds like you're focused a lot on them. And this is, was true when we, we spoke earlier. Uh, you know, is that one of your differentiators, some, something that you think is going to set you apart in how you approach this issue? Obviously, there's a lot of gun rights groups out there. There's a lot doing, uh, you know, rallies and, and uh, political activism. Uh, you know, there, there's bigger groups than you guys, the NRA being an obvious one um, doing this stuff. So what is, is that how you plan to set yourself apart? What are what are the unique things that you guys are bringing to the table here? When we look at the 2A political space, and again, what we have heard from our members is there are a lot of 2A political groups, and I think a lot of work, groups that are doing really good work, um, Second Amendment Foundation and other groups launching legal challenges, for example. That's not something that the USCCA plans on operating in, but we think that's great work and you know want to partner and continue to see those organizations do that. Um, I don't see, we didn't see a ton of investment in in gun owners, this sort of grassroots activation piece. I think that's what's currently missing in this whole conversation. We see a lot of focus in the legal space, rightfully so. We're having some success there. We obviously saw a win in the Supreme Court last year with the Bruin decision. Um, the legal landscape is important, and I think there's a lot of great work being done there. I don't see a lot of great work being done in the grassroots space. I don't see a ton of investment um, in the average gun owner teaching them how again, to be these sorts of citizen lobbyists and to be the best advocates for themselves, for responsible gun ownership. Um, and it's really true to the mantra of the USDCA. We teach our members to be responsible gun owners. We talk a lot about personal responsibility. What the Action Fund and what our political advocacy efforts are going to focus on is uh, your individual civic responsibility, that ultimately we get the government we deserve. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And if you are uncomfortable or frustrated, dismayed at the current political environment, it's up to you to stand up and get involved in your local community, state, federal level, wherever it may be, um, and participate. And I, what we don't see is a ton of empowerment and investment there. And that's really where the USCCA wants to live. It's where we want to focus. Um, we want to teach gun owners how to be their own best advocates, be their, the best representatives they can be for gun ownership. Um, again, because if we're going to protect and safeguard the Second Amendment for generations to come with millions of new gun owners, we have to change the perception of gun ownership. We have to fight this overarching media narrative that gun owners are evil or that a firearm is inherently dangerous. Uh, there's a lot of it's an uphill battle. And so I think that really starts at the ground level organically through grassroots. Hmm. OK. And how. How do you plan to approach sort of the political realities surrounding guns? Obviously, we're in this very polarized era, uh, and guns in particular have become a very partisan issue where essentially there are very few pro-gun Democrats left, at least at the national level. Um, and there it's really become an issue that's completely captured by the Republican Party as far as uh, you know, advocacy goes. Like there's not a, how do you deal with that? And, and, you know, even extending beyond the national level to the state level, you see a lot of extreme polarization there where, 
Uh, gun laws are radically different once you cross state borders in some areas. What what are your plans to operate in this sort of uh, this sort of era that we've we've uh, found ourselves in? I would say this is idealistic and this is optimistic, and we recognize that um, gun ownership shouldn't be political. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be partisan. Uh, the Second Amendment is the guiding founding principle document of our country. All elected officials take an oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution. The Second Amendment is part of that. The fundamental right to self-defense really shouldn't be partisan. That continues to be um, what the USCCA believes and what we say to our members. Um, and Stephen, we have a lot of members across the political spectrum who identify as Democrat, Republican, Green Party, Libertarian, Independents. Um, and so we want to... We, we want to start there. Foundationally, fundamentally, we don't believe this should be a partisan issue. Now, to your point, there are political realities right. um, that in this environment, it is hotly contested, it is polarized. And so we'll continue to work with anyone who wants to have a conversation about the fundamental right to self-defense, who's willing to stand up and protect the Second Amendment. If that's Republicans, if that's Democrats, great. Um, but we want to be welcoming to sort of that whole political spectrum, recognizing um, likely the majority, especially of elected leaders in this country, um, are going to identify as Republicans. But I think we need to take a step back and, and recognize that this really shouldn't be a partisan issue. And we certainly saw over the past two years gun ownership cut across all political ideologies, cut across all races, all demographics, all age groups. Um, so it isn't, we understand it's optimistic and idealistic, um, but still believe that this really shouldn't be partisan. Yeah, I mean, because, uh, and I think I would just want to dig in here a little bit more on this, because you look at a group like the NRA, right? This has millions of members, even still today, even with the struggles it's gone through across the entire country. Um, and they do talk about, at times, supporting anyone who supports their mission. But at the same time, you see from them, uh, and it's not just the NRA, you see this with a lot of single issue advocacy groups, uh, the ACLU would be another sort of prime example of this, where uh, there, there seems to be a calculation that, uh, you know, a certain demographic uh, of, uh, of donors, essentially, or members uh, is much more uh, profitable, or you're, you're able to get more revenue out of them by uh, appealing to all sorts of issues that have really not much to do with firearms, but are partisan issues as well. You've seen the NRA do ads that talk about immigration, that talk about vaccine mandates, uh, things of that nature. You've seen the ACLU uh, go well outside of civil liberties issues into other sort of liberal identity issues as well. Um, uh, and that, that kind of speaks to perhaps the political realities that we're in again, like maybe it's more advantageous to, to try and uh, raise more revenue from your core group of supporters than it is to try to get it from people on the fence of an issue. Uh, it seems to be a strategic calculation going on there. Um, you know, what's why don't you think that's the right approach? Or why do you prefer the one that you just articulated here? Why do you think that will be better? I think the other approaches you've outlined are short-sighted and a lack of discipline at the end of the day. The USCCA has very clear guiding um, core principles and mission, um, and we intend not to stray from that, that we really are talking about the fundamental right to self-defense, 
that a firearm is one of the best tools to protect yourself, protect your family, that we are trying to create safer communities for all people, um, and that we believe their individuals have a civic responsibility to get involved in the political process. Um, and I think, again, this is just, it's a focus um, on being very clear on what our mission is, what our core values are, and what we want to accomplish for our membership. Hmm. Okay. And extending from that to, you know, the, the, the sort of state level question from earlier here, obviously you're, you're going to have a much harder time of pursuing program policies in a place like California than you are in a place like Alabama or Texas or Georgia or what have you. Um, how do you guys approach that issue? Like, how are you uh, rationing out your resources to have the most impact? I think we still need to have conversations in California. We still need to have conversations in, in hard places or in quote unquote really blue places that might uh, be hostile when we're talking about gun ownership and, and this fundamental right. Um, it doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't be having those conversations. We will. Um, in terms of a strategic allocation of resources, we do take really seriously. We have a ton of individual, thousands of donors from across the country, supporters um, to our political advocacy efforts. These are your listeners and everyday gun owners who are giving on average, you know, $20, $25. And we take um, that financial stewardship really seriously. The responsibility that you have um, opened up your wallet and have trusted us with that. And so how do we be the best stewards possible of, the, of those resources? And how do we make really key strategic decisions and investments in specific states where we think we're going to make the biggest difference? Um, we're in the process of identifying that, especially over the next year. And when we're thinking about 2024, the race, of course, for president, but there are many down ballot races that are also going to have a considerable, considerable impact um, where gun owners are, where they're living, what states, where can we activate them in, uh, where is it most critical to do so. Uh, we're going to continue that sort of evaluation again to make sure we are being the best stewards um, of the resources that we can. Okay. And let's, let's get to the resources part of this, because that's what makes, I think, USCCA's entrance into the political realm or, you know, it's not your first group and we'll get to that in a little bit, but, but, you know, this, this effort that you guys are putting forth in a more serious manner, really interesting. You talked about having 800,000 members earlier and what, you know, every group talks about how they have hundreds of thousands of members. The difference I think uh, between, you know, every town's claimed number of members or some of the other gun rights groups claim number of members and, you guys and the NRA, perhaps, uh, are the fact that your members pay money to be members. They're dues-paying members, which I think is a massive distinction to like a list of emails. You know, that you sign up to follow the the newsletter of a group. It's not the same thing as signing up to pay them uh, money to be a member. And um, so, what? Obviously, eight hundred thousand is not five million. It's not even you know, what, four, four and a half million or whatever the NRA is, is currently claiming at this point. Uh, they, they still have a much larger advantage over you. And, um, you know, they're still at their peak. They were like a $400 million organization between all the groups that they, they have set up. That's a huge hole to fill if they're not going to get back to that level. And they don't seem like they're going to get back to that level anytime soon. Um, so, you know, what realistically can you guys do on this front to plug 
that hole to increase even beyond uh, where the NRA was at its peak in you know 2016 or whatever. Well, we know we have upwards of you know 20 plus million gun owners in America, so the opportunity, the market share is huge here. Um, and of course, USDCA members are paying us. They are the benefit from them, of course, is our world class firearm training, education, and our self defense liability insurance. And that's what people look to and for when they come to the USDCA. In addition to that, when we're talking about the Action Fund and the other political organizations and advocacy groups that we are launching, um, we're doing this really, again, as a response to that membership base saying, Looking, they're looking around, they're consumers, they see the 2A sort of political landscape, and they're saying, we want an alternative. Uh, we want another group that we can trust with our resources in order to fight and protect the Second Amendment. And of course, the foundation of our business um, is the Second Amendment and is the this fundamental right to self-defense. And it is, of course, in our best interest and in the best interest of our members that we safeguard this and promote it. Um, so we believe there's a huge opportunity here to continue to grow membership um, in the USCCA, but then, of course, support for our political advocacy efforts ac across the country, whether USCCA members or not. Yeah, and I guess that uh, works into the next question I have here pretty well, uh, and that is with the, the structure of the organization, right? Um, you know, most most political groups, it's not, you know, you, so you, now you have a 501c3, you already had a super PAC. A C4. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, C, C4. Um, and, you know, that's very common for, for serious political players to have multiple uh, legal entities, right? So that you can do different things with different entities. A super PAC can do things a certain way, like unlimited independent expenditures and fundraising, but it has limitations on coordinating with, campaigns, things like that, 501c4, the, you know, donors aren't, uh, don't have to be disclosed, but it's not a tax write-off to donate, you know, there's, there's, and there's rules around how much money you can, or how you can spend your money to some degree. And, um, you know, but most organizations will have five or six groups at some point. I think NRA has like nine different groups, but usually at the center of those groups, you find, um, you know, a C4 or a C3, C3 nonprofit, you know, that's the one where you donate, your name is uh, listed uh, to the IRS, but you also get a tax uh, write-off and they can't do political work. Um, so the difference seems to me for USCCA to be that the center of your organization is this for-profit company, Delta Defense, that sells the insurance, which is the main attraction, as you mentioned earlier, for most people who become USCCA members. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, the NRA, you could argue that the main reason people become members of the NRA is in part, at least the political advocacy. So uh, how, you know, why is this a better formation? Why, how do you explain this to people as to why it's going to be beneficial for the advocacy side of things and not a detraction? I would say Delta Defense has, as a for-profit business, um, the leadership of Delta Defense has really stepped up to make um, a massive financial commitment and really an investment um, in their consumers and in the protection of the Second Amendment through supporting these political advocacy efforts. 
Um, and I think that is a differentiator. Delta Defense has committed to covering many of the operating costs and overhead expenditures of, of some of the political advocacy efforts. And so that's a huge win for the everyday gun owner, consumer who's opening up their wallet and you know providing um, resources and support to these organizations because that means that money gets to go directly to the important programming and training and investment in the tools that go that are really for them that are for the gun owners and so I'd say um, it's a huge benefit it's a huge asset that the leadership of Delta Defense has said we're willing to have this financial support we're willing to make these contributions uh, because we believe so strongly in the importance of protecting the Second Amendment and making that investment um, that they're willing to do that and so that is uh, that is a massive differentiator and we are thankful uh, that Delta Defense has has lent that support. And are you confident that there, you know, obviously a, a for-profit business is there to make money. Are you confident that there's never going to be a conflict between that goal of, you know, turning a profit and the political advocacy side of things? Do you think they will always be uh, aligned in that way? Or, or I mean, is the, do you see any potential conflicts down the, line, down the line that you might have to deal with on that front? You know, I don't because they are separate and distinct entities. We have a board that's going to govern the action fund. We also have a board that governs uh, the super PAC that's working in the best interests of those entities. But often they are complementary um, and they do go hand in hand because, again, a win for um, consumers, a win for the Second Amendment, uh, less regulation, less onerous restrictions on your right to own a firearm is ultimately uh, good for Delta Defense, but it's also good for the country. So there really is a built-in, I think, dual incentive system uh, for both. Hmm. Okay. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure people looking around to decide where they want to put their money to best accomplish their goals if they're a gun rights advocate uh, are going to wonder, too, about, you know, you, uh, your your experience. Uh, why, why should they trust your political judgment? So can you tell us just a little bit about your own background? Sure. I have been in the political world realm arena for almost 15 years. I got my first start in politics. There was a businessman from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, running for Senate. He was running against the liberal lion of the Senate, Russ Feingold. Um, no one really knew who he was, but we, run, we ran sort of this uh, scrappy campaign and ended up winning. And of course, this was Ron Johnson in 2010. Uh, that was my first job in the political world. And from there, I've worked uh, for many years on Capitol Hill for a variety of different senators, members, committees. I've worked on various campaigns. Um, and after spending a lot of time in Washington, D.C., my husband and I made the decision that we wanted um, to get out of the swamp, get out of the beltway, move back home to where I'm from, which is Wisconsin, and uh, start a family. And this is when I came back and I found Delta Defense and the USCCA uh, was amazed at the growth of this company and um, of the organization based really in, in my backyard. Um, and I was excited to kind of come on and help them begin to build out and grow this government affairs um, political advocacy space, because it's really something that they hadn't done a ton of prior to about three years ago. And um, I was excited because we came in and again, we have this incredible membership base. We have folks who are saying, you know, please do this and trying to create the roadmap and the way to do this, to do it right, to be strategic about it. Um, Stephen, we're going to go slow. We're going to be deliberate. Uh, we want to be responsive to the membership. We want to do 
what's best uh, for the country ultimately. And we believe that, you know, more responsible gun owners, changing the perception of gun ownership, um, more individuals going through regular firearm training and education, taking on the civic individual personal responsibility to get involved, um, that's going to create a better society, um, safer communities. And that's that's ultimately our goal. Uh, so it's been a fun, it's been a fun journey. I'm excited to be back in Wisconsin. Okay. And, um, you know, just real quick on the, the resources aspect of this, you know, like I see a lot of potential here, all the things you just described. It's one of the one of the groups that I've been following since, uh, you know, at least 2019 when uh, the NRA started having its uh, issues with uh, corruption allegations and all that and, and loss of membership and so forth. But, you know, you look around and you do see USCCA is sort of this next, you know, you have a you have a nationwide firearm safety training program. You have a membership based organization with dues paying members. You have a nationwide reach. Uh, you know, the there certainly seems to be a lot of potential there. Uh, but obviously, uh, it's uh, like you said, you're going to grow slowly. Uh, and, you know, I wonder, you know, the 2016, the NRA spent 50 million dollars to help elect Donald Trump. They spent significantly less in 2020. They'll probably spend even less than that in 2024. Where do you guys see yourselves uh, lining up in that money race uh, as we get to this next election? Well, I would say that is not our primary focus or the primary metric of success for us mm. is how much money we're spending or how much money others are spending in political races and elections. Uh, you and I could talk probably at nauseam about strategic investment and dollar for dollar and where you should be putting uh, money for specific political races. Mm. That is not what we're measuring success by. And that's not what's going to be our immediate focus. Our immediate focus um, is really on this grassroots activation, these in-person experiences, facilitating and creating these pockets of communities of gun owners uh, who understand what's at stake and are willing to get involved. And that's where we're going to really focus and measure our success and um, the interest of gun owners by is as we look ahead to the next year, as we plan these in-person events, again, all the things we talked about, activist training seminars and mm -hmm. uh, get out the vote registration campaigns and uh, all those really great community-focused events, uh, what's the reception? What's the interest? And that's really where we're going to be focused and where we're going to be measuring our success by. Okay. So you're much more focused on activist training and get out the vote activation than you are on political ad spending something like that. So uh, what is the metric exactly that you're going to be looking at then? We're going to be looking at the amounts of events we host, the amount of people that are turning out for these events, the amount of people that are signing up and participating in our petitions and our calls to action that are mobilizing, that might be testifying as we organize, um, you know, in state capitals, for example, testifying against bills or uh, providing, um, we have a great advocacy tool where, where we're able to send letters to members of Congress, where we're able to facilitate meaningful contacts, phone, text, email uh, with elected officials. It's that sort of engagement and activation that we're going to be looking to our membership base and beyond to um, to see how successful how successful this is and the interest. And then, of course, we're also going to be looking to uh, leaders in the firearms community. We've had a lot of interest and great reception and conversation from folks. Uh, we're looking to them, you know, to not just words, but opening up their wallets and making this investment um, in the Second Amendment, in consumers, in the everyday gun owners who are often buying their products 
to say, you know, we're going to help empower you and engage you ahead of 2024. Okay. And we will certainly be following you guys as you uh, attempt to do those things here at The Reload. So uh, if people want to find out more about the Action Fund and what you guys are up to and how to get involved, um, how can they do that? I would encourage folks to check out our website, the USCCAActionFund.org. Follow us on any of our social media, Twitter, Facebook, USCCA Action Fund. Again, you'll find us across those channels. Please follow us, engage, take a look. Um, and we're always interested in folks' support. You can reach out to me directly from the website. There's contact there. If you're interested in hosting an event or having a conversation and helping to develop and build out this community, uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We are going to head over to our news update now. Thank you, Stephen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Phillies won the wild card. They're on to the the uh, NLDS against the Braves. This is the weekly sports update here on the show that I'm sure everyone is tuning in for. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Eagles are 4-0, although I will say, you know, this, we're filming on Friday, so I watched Thursday Night Football while I was putting together the the newsletter, which I always put, uh, I have terrible time management and just don't ever have enough time. So I'm always putting the newsletter together. Like it, I'm usually finished by midnight or so. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, it, so I watched the whole game that way, writing the newsletter and watching the game. And it made me feel worse about the Eagles because the, the commanders who we barely beat in overtime got destroyed by the worst team in football. Yeah. Uh, right. The the Bears. Uh, and it just and of course, I picked up the commander's defense for my fantasy team this week. Oof. Um, <laughs> yeah, I stream my defenses. I just pick up whichever one's playing like the worst offense. Yeah. And I mean, after they after they played the Eagles fairly well, they they go and get what was it? 40 points to the, yeah. the freaking Bears. What? Like, Give them their first win of the season. Yeah. How does that happen? That's Even my just, Broncos beat the Bears. That's right. Like, <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. And so I think they put up negative points for me. So thanks, Commanders. Yeah. Great job. They got this, all these guys on their defensive line, and they're a joke. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, man. The, the change in ownership has not helped them, it seems. <laughs> How well, are you doing? I'm I'm feeling the opposite because, as I just alluded to, my Broncos finally got a win on the season yeah. by beating yeah. the hapless Bears. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> maybe aren't go so hapless. From here, oh yeah. yeah, that's right. Super Bowl bound now. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, good. Boy. Finally got a dub. I finally can come out out of a football weekend not completely just in disarray over the state of Colorado football. So there you go. It's a positive there you steps. Go. There's a positive. Uh, Chris, I'm still super happy because the Phillies are are pouring it on, you know, they swept the Marlins and now I, of course we're going up the, against the Braves, which is like the best team in baseball. Yeah. But I will say that, especially the last series we played against them, they looked like, uh, the Phillies could beat them again. Like I, I'm not, yeah, I, I definitely think we could beat them, especially with how hot the Phillies are right now. Yeah. And the Braves had to sit and wait, you know, the, the, the buy in baseball is not as valuable, I think, as in right. football. So, 
you know, you want to be that hot team coming into a series. You don't want to be sitting around waiting and base. Cause they, those guys are used to playing like every day. Basically it's kind of crazy, but um, so we'll, we'll see how those go. And then uh, you doing any shooting this weekend? You got any plans for that? We'll see. Yeah, I might have a, a bit of a busy weekend work-wise, but I, I've been trying the last couple of weekends to get to the range and just something has come up every time and haven't been able to, but I, I would like to, cause it's been, it's overdue. It's been, I think two months since I've even gone to the range. So yeah. I'd like to do that. Yeah. A friend sent me a new optic for the AR. So I have to try that out soon. I still have to get the old, the optic on my, uh, my 365X macro replaced. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Uh, like, I feel like I, I'm going to call SIG and complain and hopefully they'll send me a replacement, but I don't think I could trust that uh, Zero Elite anymore. Right. They have a new optic, I guess, that's higher end now. So I don't know if I should try and go with that one or just get away from SIG optics altogether and go to like Hollow Sun or somebody like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe people... Maybe, maybe the audience can tell me what they what they think I should do with that. Because, like, you know, Zero Elite, I don't know. Maybe it's just that one that was defective and just eats batteries, you know, once a month. Or I've heard bad things about it generally. So I think it's probably not just mine. Um, but it has messed up my whole carry regime here. You know, like, I don't I'm – I'm back to carrying the Springfield xds which uh, is is old as heck and only holds what eight rounds in the magazine so uh that was kind of defeated the whole purpose of why i upgraded right extra capacity so i don't know also i'm still <laughs> uh i think i already said this but you know i have to i had to reschedule my dc concealed carry application that was supposed to be the day that i went up to the farm because of that escaped murderer um and uh and so I had to push back another three months because DC is is a joke. The system is a joke. It's intended to make you, uh, you know, not want to actually get the permit as right. much as they can possibly do it. And um, yeah. So uh, speaking of which, we have we have stories related to this, right? Uh, we can start off real quick with one of our stories before we get into the headlines because it relates to this uh, Maryland. Their, their Bruin response bill, their concealed carry law, uh, ran into some trouble this week, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's sort of the latest saga in the various formerly May issue states that have tried to evade or, or rebuke the Supreme Court's ruling in Bruin to pass mostly just like ubiquitous gun-free zones in their states. That's sort of been the common theme through all of these. There's some other mm -hmm. you know, factors as well. but uh, And once again, it was blocked by a federal judge uh, who said that at least some of the, you know, he didn't he didn't do it across the board, but many of the gun free zones that were passed in Maryland's law uh, likely violated the Second Amendment, so it was blocked. Yeah. So, very similar ruling to what we've seen out of New York, New Jersey, Hawaii, right? Where uh, they pass these laws, they make everything a gun free zone, they reverse the presumption for publicly accessible private property, in what uh, gun rights advocates have started calling this the vampire rule. Which okay. I actually uh, enjoy that name because it is, is it, funny. you know <laughs> it's funny because uh, once you uh, once it was explained to me what the heck it means, um, but uh, yeah, I guess in vampire lore, right, in, in vampire mythology, uh, for a vampire to enter your house, you have to invite them in, and so uh, with this, the way this rule works, uh, for somebody carrying a gun, 
you'd have to invite them onto your into your store or your restaurant or whatever. Um, and so that they've started calling it the vampire rule because of that. Uh, the, that is lost across the board everywhere. Yeah. Um, of course, <clears throat> all these laws are still in effect. So, I, you know, unfortunately for the people living in these states, uh, you know, it, I am sure it's been a bit of a roller coaster for them, although I, I imagine they expected things like this would happen after after the Supreme Court ruling. But, you know, they've had all these laws get struck down, but they remain in effect because of appeals and how the process works. Um, and so, uh, you know, m- most of the people who live in these states are still basically unable to carry a gun legally. Yeah. And uh, in fact, they're oftentimes in worse position than they were before because you still have people who would uh, occasionally be able to get a permit or depending on where you live in the state, right? Like New York, upstate New York, you were much more likely to be able to get a permit and it would give you access to more places before Bruin. So somewhat ironically, there are in practice fewer people who can actually carry in fewer places than before. So um, I can't imagine that's going to stay that way for very long though. Yeah. You know, the, the, the fact that these are all losing uh, the lower courts, uh, you know, the, the, Circuit courts that don't like Bruin can delay things to some degree for a while, but it's unlikely that they'll be able to completely forestall rulings against these laws um, for very long. Yeah, Uh, I think it's a good point to make because, you know, we've seen a lot of conflicting rulings on like hardware ban cases, for example, where, you know, mm-hmm. some courts in some states are have been upholding them regularly. Some have been striking them down regularly. But it is interesting to note that these Bruin response bills have almost across the board at the lower court level, at least been struck down. Yeah, as you said, many of them yeah. are still in effect because of stays and whatnot while it's being appealed. But in terms of actual rulings, they've almost across the board been uh, struck down several times now. So, yeah, they fared even worse than the hardware ban stuff to this yeah. point. Because you get more of a mix with assault weapons bans or magazine bans. You've had federal judges go either way on those oftentimes. But with the the Bruin response bills have been much less successful uh, post-Bruin, which kind of makes sense. Because they're they're not even really designed very well to stand up to the standard that was put in place by the Supreme Court, honestly. I mean, this was one of the things after Bruin that was most surprising to me is that they went this direction because because of places like D.C., where as much as they make it a very big hassle to get your permit, um, you can still get it. And it does actually let you carry in most places outside of uh, the metro, which is a big impediment. And there have been lawsuits over that. But they also have, it's one of those things where they have a law that says you can't carry on Metro, but nobody's ever actually been arrested with a permit for carrying on Metro. So it's the federal judges in this circuit have consistently held that nobody has standing because they haven't been arrested doing the thing that is illegal. Nobody has been arrested doing it. So, uh, you know, there are games like that that can be played as well. But um, I was, yeah, but I was base, basically just surprised they didn't try to do what DC did, which is essentially push things up to the limit, you know, make it may issue, but make it um, just, you know, 16 hours of training to get your permit or, or, you know, make a number of gun free zones around, but not to the point where basically you can't carry, which is what they, and what most of these uh, 
boom response balls actually do, which has been the surprising part because it's like this isn't going to work. <laughs> you know, this doesn't. It's very difficult to see any way that these are going to survive scrutiny in the end. Whereas DC's law, it's more of like a micromanaging their law sort of issue, um, if that makes any sense. So, yeah, so we're yeah we're back to another one of these boom response balls getting a, a thumbs down from the courts again, and I, and of course it will be stayed. And it, w- it was stayed when it was issued and will likely be stayed pending appeal. Um, and so unfortunately for people subject to these laws, you're still going to have to deal with them. But the direction in courts are positive for gun rights advocates, at least not for uh, the state or for gun control advocates. Yeah. So what do we got in headlines? What do we got? In yeah. So over in the newsletter links, uh, one interesting story comes to us from Courthouse News Service, uh, where the state of Missouri, the government of Missouri, is appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court right now over their uh, Second Amendment Preservation Act. It's sort of one of these Second Amendment sanctuary laws that it's probably one of the broadest in the country, especially at the state level, uh, where the state of Missouri essentially attempted to nullify all federal gun laws that it says infringes on the right to keep and bear arms uh, and it levies a a $50,000 fine or potential $50,000 fine for any state and local official that aids federal law enforcement in enforcing any of these laws that it considers to be unconstitutional. And that's been blocked by courts. um, And so the state is now asking the Supreme Court to step in and let it enforce this law. Yeah. So here's the other side of the coin, right, from those broom response laws where you look at a broom response law and you think, that's not going to stand up to scrutiny. And then you look at this flavor of Second Amendment sanctuary law that pushes into essentially nullification of federal law. You know, it's one thing to say that we won't use local or state resources to enforce um, you know, gun laws that we don't think are constitutional. Uh, that That is probably fine. Um, it's almost certainly fine. But because the federal government can't force uh, states and localities to enforce uh, their laws, that's that's established by the Supreme Court. But where they cross the line is into nullifying federal law. I mean, this is kind of we settled this at one point in American history. Um, it was not a very pretty time. It was the Civil War. Right? This is this is what a lot of Southern states had attempted to do in the lead up to the Civil War is nullify federal laws and say they don't apply within the state borders. And um, yes, that's not something that is going to survive scrutiny, I think. it's And it's kind of, there's sort of two problems with it, right? With these these laws as they've been passed. Um, And that's one, that they're nullification and that's just blatantly unconstitutional you can't you can't say that federal laws don't apply uh inside of your state and then two there's uh they're also super vague is the other problem with them because they they just say any law that's uh gun law that's unconstitutional right and uh, they don't say which ones they think are unconstitutional and so it could be any of them really and uh it's just they didn't put the effort into trying to outline what they would. You know, these came up as like a a pushback against confiscation attempt. You know, mass confiscation is usually what you'll hear. Sometimes red flag laws will, will be the basis for these sanctuary provisions. Um, but these state 
based, the state level laws end up being, they tend to be a lot more vague and symbolic than that. They're just like gun laws that are unconstitutional aren't in effect here. And well, what, which ones are, do you think are unconstitutional or any that currently exist unconstitutional in your mind? Like, uh, what about, you know, violent felons being barred from owning guns? That's, that's a federal prohibition, uh, or domestic violence, uh, convicts. Are those like, do you consider those unconstitutional? Probably not. Right. Most, most people in most States would not think those aspects are unconstitutional. Obviously there's plenty of fights over nonviolent felons or, or even obviously the Supreme court is taking up a law right now on domestic violence restraining orders. But, um, you know, usually these were, were put in place for future looking laws of like if, if there was a mass confiscation effort undertaken by the federal government or something, then we wouldn't allow that to happen in our state. And that's kind of the symbolic thing they're trying to do. But unfortunately, the way it comes out is creates all sorts of questions about what they consider to be unconstitutional gun laws because it's not defined. And then it goes into nullification territory the way it's not going to survive. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think that, that pretty much sums it up. I, one, one, the Supreme Court, I don't think is going to step in and put this into effect. But two, in the long no. run, I think, as you said, these nullification laws aren't going anywhere. And they can also be really detrimental to the people that live in those states, because uh, usually you see this was something that had started with uh, silencers, right? That uh, they'd and not really a nullification law, but it's sort of an attempt to claim that uh, as long as you make a silencer and sell it within state borders, can't I believe it was Kansas that did this. Texas um, as well. Well, yeah, but I think there was maybe it might have actually been Missouri initially. I can't recall off the top of my head, unfortunately, but there was a state that tried to there have been a couple of states since then. I've tried this, but uh, in a, a bit more responsible manner. But initially, the, one of the first ones to do this was trying to claim that, you know, as, as long as you make uh, and sell the uh, silencer with, within state borders, uh, federal law doesn't apply to that, that manufacture and sale. And so you don't have to register it with the ATF or pay the tax stamp or, or do all this stuff under the National Firearms Act. And the problem with that law is that it was clearly passed to be a symbolic gesture. And this is another problem that you run into. Like if you're in a state that has a lot of uh, pro-gun policies and they kind of run out of things to do next, they start doing stuff like this where it's meant to be symbolic. But if you take them seriously, you could end up in jail, which is exactly what happened um, to a couple guys who followed their state's silencer law and ended up being arrested and prosecuted because that's not how the law works. The state cannot nullify federal laws. It also was done under this theory that the NFA is justified by interstate commerce clause, which obviously a lot of conservatives have issues with, uh, you know, perhaps legitimate issues with. But that's not what the NFA is justified under anyway. It's a tax. The NFA is a tax. It, um, the government has broad taxing authority. And, it, you know, it, it's, it, it didn't work. And those people went to jail. And, you know, the, this is some of the sort of byproduct 
of passing laws like this is if you tell people, if your, if your state government tells you that, oh, yeah, it's perfectly legal, don't listen to the feds, and then the feds show up at your door and arrest you, it doesn't matter what your state <laughs> politician said when they passed this bill. Right. Um, yeah, and, and, and really, these, these lawmakers should be challenging it themselves. And I guess to be fair to Texas, that is how they had set up their version of the silencer nullification bill where they told people it wasn't going to be in effect until uh, the state filed a lawsuit. And, and if they won the lawsuit, it would, it would go into effect. So um, there has been at least some effort to keep this from happening again with with uh, lawmakers in these states. But these these sorts of bills end up uh, creating a lot more problems, I think, than they do any good. You know, it's, it's another thing where you when it passes, just like a broom response bill, you're like, this isn't going to hold up in court. It's just not. Sure. Anyway, what's our next story? Yeah. On to the next. This link uh, I wanted to include just because there's a little personal hook here for me. So uh, hmm. the AR company that some of you listeners may be familiar with, uh, Wyndham Weaponry uh, up in Maine, is officially going out of business. Um, and, you know, it's, they were a relatively small gun maker. It was started by the former folks that ran Bushmaster before Bushmaster sold in 2011. Uh, and so they re retooled up and, and just opened up under the Wyndham name. But that was actually the first AR I ever bought when I was 21 years mm -hmm. old. It was my first starter AR. And that's sort of what they were known for, sort of good, basic, you know, good quality budget ARs. And so they're officially going out of business. So one less AR maker on the market. Yeah. The founder passed away in March, I believe. Yeah. And um, it can be hard to continue momentum of a, bit, a small business like that when the founder leaves and uh plus you're in a bad market right now for yeah for ARs and really guns generally are are pretty well down there was um by the way uh, just a, another slight headline update here there uh there was another year over year decrease in gun sales last month uh although the good news i guess for the industry if if you can point to any is that the decrease was smaller than the previous two years or sorry, previous two months before that, because I think it was like a 20% drop year over year for July. And so it's now it's down to an 8% drop in um, September. So um, perhaps the the rate of decline is slowing. That's, that's at least something. And we did see, obviously, we wrote about Smith & Wesson finally recovering to the point where they actually had a profitable uh, quarter for the first time or in a, in a while, well, a quarter where they weren't, um, where sales increased instead of decreased year over year. So, uh, perhaps we're finding the bottom of the market, but, but it's certainly not what it was two years ago. That's for sure. Yeah. And then the last link we'll talk about before we head over to our final story is, uh, comes through the Detroit free press. It's sort of an interesting, uh, look into how states are and prosecutors are handling the parents of, of school shooters. So this deals with the Oxford High School school shooter in Michigan. Um, and the Michigan Supreme Court just allowed the prosecution of that school shooter's parents to go forward. They're being they're facing involuntary manslaughter charges because they bought the gun for their son that he eventually used to carry out this mass shooting. Um, and it's just interesting to see because I think this is a first of its kind where the parents of a school shooter are being criminally prosecuted. Yeah, they bought the gun. They also... I guess the idea is that they ignored a number of uh, red flags that he was uh, potentially going to carry out this attack. I mean, he had, it seems like the school could also be held somewhat 
accountable for these things. But, you know, he had drawings about uh, where he's fantasizing about carrying out killings. And there were, you know, there's various comments that he made to his parents and they didn't do, I guess the accusation is that they didn't do enough to intervene to prevent this. And so they're being charged alongside him, which is, yeah, it is pretty remarkable. You haven't really seen that before. Um, and it does have a lot of implications uh, down the line, I think, for not just mass shootings, but all sorts of things where, where when minors commit crimes or, or violent crimes or murder, uh, whether their parents can be held responsible for that legally is sort of a, uh, a really big question, I would think. You, you also kind of saw this in Virginia with the, the elementary school kid who stole, got a hold of his mother's gun and shot his teacher. Um, I think that was a little bit different because I think they, they weren't necessarily necessarily charging her for the actual shooting itself. I think they they brought her up on uh, uh, with the Hunter Biden charge, the drug use charge. And it seems like kind of just a we're going to throw something at you for this. Even right. It's not directly related. So there does seem to be more of an appetite among prosecutors now to try and hold parents accountable when their children um, commit school shootings. Uh, I don't know. We'll see this. I don't know if this is going to work in Michigan. I mean, these people have been in jail for two years uh, already um, pending the, uh, just the trial in this case. So um, we'll see how it goes. And I, I, it's pretty interesting. I, I wonder how the public at large, feels about that. You know, I'm sure a lot of people would hold them responsible given how they ignored some of the signs that this could happen, I guess. Uh, and that they bought, they, you know, they had, they didn't, they, they claimed that they didn't know he had the gun. Obviously they claimed that they kept it secured away from him, but obviously they, that security wasn't very good. So, right. um, I don't know. It's a very unique and novel case, uh, from my understanding. I don't, recall any of these for other incidents in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, at least. Yeah. it's certainly a trend we'll stay on top of too, because it, it does have some big implications. Like you said, um, the final story we're going to talk about today is a court ruling on uh, the latest court ruling on the ATF's pistol brace ban, uh, where for the first time we now have a district judge issuing an injunction, not on administrative procedure grounds, but actually on a finding that they may be covered by the second amendment. If you want to talk about that ruling that you wrote up. Yeah, big change here, right? Because uh, we've we've talked about these cases, the the ATF rules, you know, President Biden's uh, unilateral action on on gun policy, where he's trying to ban these different things, and those have mostly been stopped, including you know, and President Trump reform with the bump stock ban, and all those had been stopped on APA grounds, administrative procedure, sorry, administrative procedure act grounds, like essentially that the ATF doesn't have the authority to do these things, instead of the fact that uh, the idea that these accessories and, and firearms are covered by the Second Amendment, that's a totally different argument that hasn't really come up in these cases, at least not in the rulings against the ATF. So that's a pretty big sea change in this case. And now you have Judge O'Connor, Reed O'Connor. He's been involved in this case from the beginning uh, against the pistol brace ban in the Fifth Circuit. And he actually initially denied, um, if you remember all the way back, the first ruling from him was was denying the 
the injunctions against this rule. And then the Fifth Circuit panel of the appeals panel uh, granted them. And so now he's he has to go back and relitigate this stuff under their reasoning. And so uh, but he came to the conclusion that, yes, uh, pistol braces or braced pistols, um, firearms that have pistol braces on them are, in fact, protected by the Second Amendment and uh, that they are, more importantly, in common use for lawful purposes. Right. That that was sort of the bottom line of what he found. Um, and therefore, they can't be banned or restricted in the way that the ATF wants to do that. And and that's that has a lot of implications, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because he, he drew on uh, a lot of the findings during the administration when the regulatory rulemaking was going on, sort of the findings of the ATF's estimates of how many braces that were out there. Uh, he used the lower end estimates, you know, it's the five to seven million or whatever, uh, maybe three, four to three seven, to million. seven three, yeah. three to seven. Yeah. And obviously we've seen the Congressional Research Service estimate could put it up as high as 40 million potentially. But either way, him narrowing down on that five to seven or three to seven rather uh, million braces and saying that represents, you know, a commonality for, you know, use among law abiding people you wrote about in a member's piece has huge implications, not just for pistol braces, but for all yeah. sorts of Second Amendment hardware ban cases, right? Absolutely. And oh, by the way, he also cites our reporting when he was considering whether to issue this injunction because um, according to the ATF, from what they told us, they'd only registered, um, yeah, I think a quarter million of these yeah. or maybe three quarters. I can't remember. It was about 8% registration rate um, going off the, the low end estimate of how many are out there. And so his part of his point was that there are a lot of people still, uh, specifically FPC members, that, you know, they got into the whole thing of wanting to avoid a nationwide injunction, but also grant the, the widest possible relief to the plaintiffs in the case. And the plaintiffs in this case include the Firearms Policy Coalition and all of its members. And so he's sort of implying that a lot of FPC members probably have these guns and haven't turned them in and are, are now uh, could be subject to prosecution without an injunction. So that's where he used our reporting uh, in this case. The Fifth Circuit had cited our reporting previously as well. But the more important aspect is this idea that 3 million pistol-braced guns, or braced pistols, or whatever you want to call them, uh, qualifies as being in common use. That's important because... The common use standard came up almost 15 years ago at this point in Heller, but it hasn't ever really been articulated as to what constitutes common use, right? Um, you've had a couple things where judges have opined on this. You had uh, Justice Alito in Satano briefly talked about common use uh, in regards to stun guns, where you put the number of the estimated number as low as 200,000 of those. And he said that makes them in common use because they're available all over the country and there's hundreds of thousands of them and, you know, owned by, by people who are law abiding. And, and so, you know, you had that, but that's one justice in a concurrence and, and you, you, so anytime you get a new case where a judge is opined on this topic, what exactly is common use? I think that's extremely important uh, and very relevant. Now, look, he so he puts it in the millions. Millions was sort of the bottom line for him 
yeah, he, he cites the three to seven million, but he just says millions owned by people that the ATF admits themselves were law abiding um, that bought them legally at the time. And so that to him, that puts them in common use, uh, which makes them protected under the Second Amendment, which means you'd have to have some sort of uh, with Bruin, you'd have to have some sort of um, historical tradition of of barring commonly used firearms like this, which doesn't exist. And so therefore, you can't ban them. You can't heavily restrict them the way the ATF wants to do. And I think this creates huge implications for, um, geez, I mean, every hardware ban basically, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. You know, I went through all of them in that members piece and, you know, there's sort of variations in how many there are and how, accurate or how reliable the estimates of those devices are, you know, you start off with magazines, which you've got the almost certainly the most uh, magazines that are affected by these high capacity bands, even though the definition of what high capacity means changes from state to state, sometimes from gun to gun within the state, right? Yeah, I think it was Washington has the Washington, Oregon, they set a different standard for handguns and rifles for some reason. Yeah. Um, and then uh, but yeah, it could be 10 rounds, it could be 15 rounds, it could be 12 rounds, 17 rounds of the changes. But and there's really no way to know how many are out there because nobody keeps records of magazine sales. They're not usually serialized devices, so you couldn't figure it out even if you wanted to. Um, and the best estimates that I've seen are like, uh, I think plaintiffs in, in magazine bank cases have used 115 million, right, as as one estimate. Um, so they're probably the most numerous of the things that get targeted for bans, right? And that, you know, certainly even if you're a magnitude of an order of magnitude off, they're going to be in the millions. Um, then you go to ARs, right? So-called assault weapons. The, again, you have the same definitional issues where an assault weapon in California is not the same thing as an assault weapon in Maryland. And there aren't you have a little bit more reliable estimates because they're based on an industry analysis by the National Shooting Sports Foundation of ATF reports on manufacturing records, you know, but the manufacturing records don't get you in, don't really get into like the exact models that are made. They're more broad than that, but they are at least sort of required reports manufacturers have to hand in to the ATF of how many a particular kind of gun they made or class of gun. Um, and then the, you know, the NSSF goes from that to try and figure out how many are out there. They put that number at 24.4 million, uh, really ARs and AKs is what they're looking at. Assault weapons laws usually apply to a much broader swath of weapons than just ARs and AKs too. But regardless, even if that's way off, you're still probably well into the millions there. And then you get to uh, silencers or sound suppressors, right? And that's where you get the most reliable estimate because every suppressor, as we kind of went over earlier, has to be registered with the ATF under the National Firearms Act. And so you have a, probably a pretty exact count of how many of those exist. And uh, last report that the ATF put out, I think it was 2.6 million registered and that was in May of 2021. So they're probably more than that now. They might, they might have reached that 3 million mark that uh, is the low end estimate of braced pistols from the ATF. So, uh, you know, 
that also calls into question perhaps the NFA itself because of uh, the fact that it's trying to uh, restrict these commonly owned devices, silencers. Uh, now, you know, there is, of course, with magazines and silencers, there's going to be this side debate about whether they const whether they're arms or not. Right. Um, and, and that's uh, still a live legal debate. And that's how a lot of these assault, the, uh, sorry, the magazine bans that we've seen upheld, as you wrote about in a member's piece not long ago, I think last week, actually. Yep. Uh, that's often how they're upheld by claiming that high capacity magazines aren't arms that are protected by the Second Amendment, even if there are a lot of them out there. Right. Um, and then they also they also get into a different standard of common use. Right. The Judge O'Connor uses a standard of commonly owned, essentially, uh, and people use people own them for self-defense. Right. That's often the intention of people who buy these devices and firearms. But uh, the standards we've seen from judges who have upheld magazine bans, they say common use for self-defense. And what they mean by for self-defense is literally you have to fire more than 10 rounds in a self-defense encounter for it to count as being used for self-defense. So uh, that's where that's where things start to diverge uh, on the court level. Although I I would imagine the Supreme Court is probably siding with the O'Connor view of this over the other view. So we'll we'll see though. We'll we'll see right. how it plays out. Right. Yeah. It depends. You know. Obviously, this is just a district court judge, so this isn't you yeah. know, precedential or anything like that. But mm -hmm. like you said, it's a very interesting argument. It's the first time we've seen this now in these ATF rule cases, and if it's an argument that takes off with with other judges and potentially higher <clears throat> level circuit court judges, could oh, see yeah. that becoming precedent and and very influential going forward. So. Yeah, and I mean, that's what, honestly, gun rights advocates have been waiting for for 15 years since Heller was handed down, uh, and what gun control advocates have been fearing for 15 years. And it hasn't happened yet, right? So uh, even after Bruin, we haven't, the, the Supreme Court certainly hasn't gotten involved yet. We haven't seen a lot of these hardware ban cases make it into final decisions at the appeals court level, the circuit court level yet. So it's still going to be some time, I'd imagine. And, you know, maybe maybe it'll take another 15 years. It's not it's not a guarantee, but you are starting to see more of this this outcome, this logic running through the courts now. And I do think that it will probably continue in that direction and it won't be very long at this point before you do start seeing those hardware bands get knocked out uh, in higher court rulings and potentially at the Supreme Court sooner than later. But that's all we've got for this week. Um, we will be back again real soon. If you like what you hear on this show, if you enjoy our reporting, if you value it, uh, please head over to thereload.com and buy a membership today. That is how we can do any of this. Our operation is completely member funded. It is independent. Uh, we are not owned by any large corporate conglomerates or whatever. Um, we don't have sponsors. We have members, um, and they are the people who fund our reporting. So if you head over and join today, you will, of course, also get exclusive access to some of these analysis pieces we've discussed. Um, there's hundreds of pieces that you will find as a member you can't find anywhere else. You'll also get access to the member newsletter that comes out on Sunday in addition to our free newsletter that comes out on Fridays. Uh, 
uh, and you'll get access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show. If you are already a member and you want to be on the show, just reply to your members newsletter and uh, join us. We love talking to members and, and hearing from them about their, their backstory. It's always interesting. Um, and of course, you can support us in other ways. If you don't want to buy a membership right now, you can like this show on YouTube, leave a comment, um, <clears throat> share it with your friends and family who might be interested in it. Uh, leave us a review. Those things all help the show grow as well. And we are continuing to grow, uh, which is always great. And um, yeah, that's all we've got. We will be back again real soon. Thanks, guys. <laughs>